This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good evening, Moray Verabotai. Kitzkur Lashanim Rabot, Neimot Vetovot. Just a very, very short introduction to start tonight's beautiful, inspirational event. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, I used to always look forward to Simchat Torah. Simchat Torah, very exciting. But not because I was looking to celebrate my accomplishments of the previous year. Rather because I was looking to put the previous year behind me and have a fresh new start. And I was always very motivated, always looking forward to Simchat Torah. And I remember when I was like 16 or 17 years old, I said to myself, this year, I'm going to start learning Chumash with Rashi and Ramban and the Orachayim HaKadosh and the Kliyakra and normally Malach I'll become Mamash an expert in Chumash. I'm very excited. I couldn't wait for this. Simchat Torah was dancing. Baruch Hashem, the holiday came to an end. It was like on a Wednesday or Thursday. Next thing you know, boom, it's Shabbat. I'm not even 5% done. I was ready in Mitiyash. I gave up and I was waiting for the next Simchat Torah to start all over again. <laughs> so I came to Rabbi. I said, Rabbi, I don't get it. You know, we're, we're so excited. We're looking forward. We're starting from scratch. Simchat Torah. We just finished. We're starting all over again. Why couldn't Chazal give us like, you know, at least a week to prepare for Bereshit? Why is it we always have only two, three days and the excitement dies right off the bat? Just learning about the Briah, the creation could take decades and lifetimes. So at least one week we could get. So I'll never forget what Rabbi told me. He said, Elon, learning Bereshit is not about understanding how Hashem created and what went on during the creation. It's not about knowing all the details of the Briyat HaOlam. Learning Parashat Bereshit is just to know there's a Creator. Period. The details are not necessarily for you. That's why it's good we don't have a full week. Because you'll drive yourself crazy. You know, the tour points out, if you look at the first Pasuk, Bereshit, Bara Elohim, the first three words. The last letter of Bereshit is Tough. The last letter of Bara is Aleph. And the last letter of Elohim is Mem. We have Emet, truth. And then if you look at the end of creation, it ends up by saying, Asher Bara Elohim La'asot. Bara, last letter is Aleph. Elohim is Mem. La'asot is tough. Emet once again. The creation has Emet in the beginning and Emet at the end. And Rabbeinu B'chayi points out, if you look at the first pasuk, you have every single vowel. You have a kamat, and you have a patach, and you have a shavan, you have a cholam, you have a segol, you have a chirik, but there's one vowel missing. Which vowel is missing? We're missing the shuruk. Says Rabbeinu B'chayi, because shuruk sounds like sheker. It the same letter as sheker. There's no sheker in the briah. Kadosh Baruch Hu's kula emet is only truth. So the obvious question is, why are we getting this only in hints? You know, the first pasuk starts with emet, it ends off with emet, there's no shuruk, there's no Why can't we have it written, spelled out clearly? Emet, no sheker, truth, no lies. Why is it only done, you know, kacha, kilachayad? So the Mepharshim explained that sometimes the emet is not so clear. The truth of Hashem, the kindness of Hashem, the justice of Hashem is not so clear to us, we have to really dig deep and look for it. Sometimes it's not so pashut, it's not right in front of your face. So therefore we have everything written in messages. 
You know, we read in Tehillim, it says, Achtov v'chesed idefuni ko yemei chayai. Achtov v'chesed, only tov and chesed, good and kindness, yirdefuni, chase after me ko yemei chayai my whole life. Chacham Avadiyah said, that's how I asked, Achtov v'chesed, only good and kindness, chases after you, chasing is not a good thing. That means you're running away from it. If it's good and kindness, you should say, it's coming to me my whole life. Ba'im kol yemei What's your defuni kol yemei So Chacham Avadiyah says, because you know what? Everything Hashem does is ta'achto v'chesed. But sometimes we feel like it's chasing us. We don't want it. We're trying to run away from this reality. And it's understandable. Because like we said, the emet, the truth, the kindness is not always visible. So we're trying to run away from it. That's why the Chachamim tells us, why do we cover our eyes by Kriya Shema? Shema Yisrael, we close our eyes. The Gemara Bachot says, Kavana, you gotta have Kavana, you're coming, Mamlich on Machut Shemaim, you're accepting the yoke of heaven. So you gotta have Kavana, you don't wanna see the person's shirt, the shoes, his tie, don't be distracted by the pictures, you cover your eyes. But there's another explanation that the reason why we cover our eyes is because sometimes when our eyes are opened, we have a hard time seeing Hashem. We have a hard time seeing the kindness of Hashem, the justice of Hashem. So we close our eyes and we're proclaiming, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. I know you're here, I know you run the world, I know you're Tov, I know you're Chesed, I know you're justice. But so I can't, when my eyes open, I don't see it. So I'm just saying it, I know it, I believe it, Belev Shalem. You know, there's a lot of challenges in this world. And there's organizations that are out there that help us with these challenges. And tonight, Baruch Hashem, we have a renowned organization, A Time, that does a tremendous amount of chesed for people, and they organize a beautiful, beautiful lineup for everyone here tonight to help us recognize the good, even when it's not so visible. So it's a tremendous, tremendous honor for us to be here to partner up with them. And Bezrat Hashem, every single one of us will be blessed with Achtov Chesed that we see it and we feel it and we relive it and we shouldn't have any questions. Bezrat Hashem It's a great honor for me to call upon the director, and the founder of this wonderful organization, A Time. Please, Rabbi rise for Rabbi Rosen. Mechavad Rabbi Rosen. Ask everybody if they can. Uh, I apologize for my voice. I'm going through a cold, so I want to bring out a little bit about a time. I'm going to share a story that started about 29, 30 years ago. When I got married, me and my wife, and the first year, nothing was happening. We went to my Chusamadrachu. Who else did I know to go to? To ask, what do we do? Nothing's happening. And he told us, well, you don't do anything for two years. You wait for two years, and then we'll see after two years. After two years, I came to him. I said to him, it's two years now. Where do I start? He says, I don't know anything about infertility. I can't help you. I said, so what am I supposed to do? He says, I don't know. So I went to my my Rav, and he asked him what to do. He sat for us about two hours. He sat with me, him, me and my wife, discussing all the challenges of infertility and really understanding what we were going through. If that, he said, there's a couple of months 
that didn't have kids for a number of years, and they would just help with kids. He says, I'm going to call you tonight, and I'll give you the number from this couple, call them up, and uh, find out which doctor they used, and he should be the right shliach. So I told the Rav, there was the Gaba outside, I'm going to ask the Gaba to get the number from the Rav. So the Rav said, no, 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 the Gaba doesn't have to know why you were here, it's not his business, I'm going to call you personally. That's how sensitive he was to the whole issue. Called me, called me up at night at my, at my house, and he gave me the number to the couple. My wife called the couple, and the couple says, I don't know why the Rav sent you to us, we never, we never had any issues. I went back to the Rav the next day, and I said, maybe there's a mistake in the name, a mistake with the number. The Rav says, listen, I know who I sent you to. If they don't want to fight, they don't want to talk about it, I'll find out which doctor they used, I'll call you up at the end of the week, and I'll let you know. Thursday night, I got a call from the Rav, that is Dr. Fax in Columbia Hospital, call him up, and I should help, we should be the right shliach. The next morning, I called Dr. Fax's office in Columbia, made an appointment, I got an appointment for about four months later. Took two trains, four months came around, took two, two trains to get to Manhattan. I arrived by the information desk, and I say, where's Dr. Fax's office? The guy at the information desk turns around to me, he says, oh, Dr. Fox, he died yesterday. I said, what do you mean, he was sick? I got to start getting him four months waiting for an appointment. My rough sent me to this doctor. I mean, what am I supposed to do over here? I started getting a little agitated. And we made a little bit of a commotion. I was a young guy also at that time. And the manager came over and said, what's going on over here? He says, he's looking for Dr. Fox. I told him Dr. Fox died yesterday. He says, which Dr. Fox? I said, Harold Fox. He said, no, no, Harold Fox is still alive. A different Dr. Fox died yesterday. But Dr. Harold Fox is only affiliated with Columbia. His office is upstate. So we jumped into a taxi, and we drove upstate. We got there, of course, we got an hour and a half later appointment. He didn't see us till the afternoon, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. About 5 o'clock he took us in for examination, then consultation, and he says, I don't know why you were sent to me, I don't deal with the issue that you're dealing with. But there's a Dr. White in Colombia, he knew the story that happened, she says her office is in Colombia, which she can help you. We called the next morning, we called the Dr. White's office, we waited another four and a half months to get an appointment by her. If that was, we went to her, we her quite a few months and nothing was happening, and... After a few months, she went on maternity. She had a baby herself, and she went on maternity leave. And there was a doctor, Dr. Rafael Julewitz, who took over all, the, all her patients. And the first month, nothing happened. The second month, nothing happened. The third month, my wife got, uh, got, got pregnant, and, and she, she, she lost it second, uh, the second time again. And after a few times, we saw, he figured out what the issue was, and Baruch Hashem, we had, we had about a year later, we had our first child. But we saw from the story, we saw a few things. We saw, first of all, people don't talk. It's a subject that's... People that, even people that were, were, went through it don't want to discuss it. They don't, they don't want to share any information. They want to move on with life. They don't want to, they don't want to deal with what they dealt with. The second thing is, nobody knows the doctors. Nobody knows Dr. Fax. My rough sent me to him. He's a nice guy. He has nice nurses. If he needed more patients, I could have still been sitting by him in the office because that's why I was sent to go. I was lucky that he was a nice doctor and told me right away, I'm not made for you. Usually, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the right doctor for you. 
But how many doctors don't do that? They just try to, 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 to work with the patient. The third thing was that nobody had any connections to doctors in this area, where I had to wait about nine months just to get into a doctor because nobody had any connections to get an appointment earlier. So on those three bases, that's what we founded at Time One. Time was founded on, 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 on the thing of, of, of making support groups, making the get-togethers. People should have someone to talk to, making peer-to-peer. And then it was also the information of doctors, understanding each doctor in their specialty, and also having a shaykh to the doctors in order to get the peer person in. And as the, the organization developed, it started growing and, and it started growing to an, uh, an amount where we, we, we were trying to start, when we started the organization, we were going to be very, very, very on a low, low key. The name a time, most people don't know what a time stands for. Most people say a time, yeah, that's what it stands for. But that's not the reason, that's not the name of a time. When we started, um, the organization opened about 26 and a half years ago. We opened the organization as soon as we had our first baby, our first child. We, we opened the organization. The name A Time was put together as a name because when we started out with the organization, most newspapers didn't even want to take our ads because you're talking about a subject matter that's supposed to be so hidden and not supposed to be discussed in public. And we knew a lot of couples wouldn't want to get our mailings, our magazines, or anything. Wouldn't want to get if it had anything association with having children. So we came up with the acronym of a Torah and Fertility Medium of Exchange. And that's the name of a time a time stands from. Everything that we did, we started with, was done. We went to Rapam. The first thing that my wife and a few other ladies went to the palm to find out how we should, how should we move forward, how how we should we discuss this this topic, and Baruch Hashem, through a lot of siyata deshmaya, the organization did grow into something much bigger than we we thought we thought it's going to grow into, and we helped helped thousands upon thousands upon thousands of couples, and the name of time is known now in the public, so when we mail out things to, to, to couples, it's all done without the name, without the, the name on the outside, it's just the address, so couples should know where it's coming from, but there's no name outside. That's basically the gist of a time, but a time has a tremendous amount of services that, that, that we do, that we added on as, 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 as the organization was growing. And one of the main things that we added on was the, the topic of pregnancy loss and stillbirth. About uh, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, my wife was in the ninth month. And two days before her due date, she went to the doctor for a checkup. And we were notified that there is no heartbeat. The baby is not, not gonna make, didn't make it can't tell you what it did to the whole family for about two weeks. My wife couldn't get to herself and everything of what, what, what we were going through. After two weeks, my wife came home. She was by her mother. and She came home. The house started getting back to normal. Everything started, started falling into place. And then I went to the mailbox one morning and I found a bill from the Hebrew Kedisha, $830 for the burial for the child. I know my wife sees that. We're starting all over again. And I put it into my pocket to pay the bill. The next day I'm going to pay the bill. 
My wife decided that day that my suit needs a cleaning. And she emptied out my pockets. And she found the bill. And I can tell you those two weeks we played itself from the beginning. At that point, together with a few other people, we opened up the hug program. It wasn't called hug at that time. But we opened up the hug program, which is help understanding and guidance for pregnancy loss and stillbirth. We pay the Hebrew, we made a deal with all the Hebrew conditions that we pay the Hebrew condition, that people shouldn't get any bills, should, people shouldn't, shouldn't even have to deal with, 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 with making, making this up. I remember once got a call from Philadelphia about somebody that had a stillborn. And the person, the, the, person, the helpline person was on, on the phone and she heard knocking. And she asked, what's that knocking in the background? She says, well, um, we, uh, we had the stillborn um, a few days ago. And we called the Chavrigadish over here. And they say they don't deal with, um, with stillborns. They don't deal with. So my husband went to the lumberyard and bought some wood. And he's putting together a small little custom to be able to take the baby out to be for, for, for burial. So immediately, as soon as she heard that, we sent over the Chavrigadish to Philadelphia to pick, up, to pick up the baby from the hospital. But that, that's that, that's just the 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 the, 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 uh, the things that we do that people see and people hear about, but the emotions that the couples deal with, the, 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 what the family deals with, and 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 we have a whole program, we have a whole staff that's dedicated just to the pregnancy loss program, and that's what we're here tonight for. We're here to discuss a little bit more broader because infertility is a subject matter that 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 touches a certain part of the community. But in regard to women's health, in regard to pregnancy loss, in regard to stillbirth, that touches more of a wider, a, a wider, a, a wider audience, and that's the subject matter that we're, we're bringing to the table today over here. The Ibi should help that everybody who is having a child should have a child. It should, be, it should be in the right time. It should be, it should, it should, it should um, I'm looking for the right word over here. It should, it should, it should be here, the from everybody, from, from, uh, they should have simchas. But unfortunately, people that don't go through it, we should be able to guide them in the, in the, right, in the, in the right way. And if any Rabbanim or anybody knows anybody that's going through this massive, unfortunately, the best thing is not to talk to them too much in regard to the subject, because then most people don't want to talk. But if you give them, the only thing that you can do for them is guide them in the right direction, and they should reach out to our organization. We have special, special people that are dedicated to this subject that can help them. I want to thank everybody for coming out here tonight and being part of, the, part of, part of this program, and all the people that are listening to the program, that me as Hashem, we should all be helped in all the things that we need. And on that note, I'd like to call upon Dr. Norman Blumenthal, who, whoever knows of him, is uh, a mimcha in, 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 in understanding how people react and act in certain situations. So it's my cover to call up Dr. Blumenthal. Thank you very much, Rabbi Rosen. Um, uh, 
coming here tonight to Forest Hills was really a trip down memory lane. Um, I grew up here in Forest Hills many more years than I care to think, and literally diving down the road at the Queen's Jewish Center. And uh, the rabbi at the Queen's Jewish Center, when I was a child, was a rabbi Morris Max. Uh, of course, the show is more well-known for Rabbi Grunblatt, Rabbi Max used to begin his sermon, though, with, uh, before I speak, I want to say something. So uh, I'm going to follow in that tradition, now that we're right in this vicinity. And before I speak, I want to say something. First of all, I want to ask the Rashet of Rabbi Rav and Rabbi Rose and Rabbi Wallerstein. Uh, in fact, I was, uh, first I was wondering, that why would I come before Rabbi Wallerstein? That didn't make much sense. Um, uh, you know, then I realized that if Rabbi Wallerstein speaks first, then nobody will be here for my speech. So this way we make sure everybody's here. Um, but I was also greatly relieved that I won't be, uh, have to be compared to Rabbi Wallerstein by speaking after him. And then Rabbi Rosen spoiled that with this beautiful introduction and very moving personal uh, odyssey. So again, you'll probably be disappointed. But whenever I speak for a time, and in fact, I will say comparably, some of you may know I teach in the YU Smicha program, preparing Rabbanim uh, for psychological teaching. Of course, I co-teach with David Palkovitz, my friend and colleague, a course called Pastoral Psychology, which is uh, what we call a survey course. In other words, there's different subjects every week, and at one point we do speak about infertility, uh, or we lecture on infertility. And I usually begin, and I've probably begun my other speeches yeah, and by the way, I have to say something. I'd be wrong not to mention Chami Friedman, who has done so much for HUG and for organizing this event. So thank you, Chami. But whenever I begin, I often think of something that my mother once told me. Allah shalom. Uh, my mother, survivor of seven concentration camps, used to say that when she was a, a teenager in Auschwitz, and she knew she was going to die, it didn't bother her that she wouldn't know what it's like to be an adult. And it didn't even bother her that she'd never know what it was like to be married, even that she would never know many of the pleasures of marriage. But when the thought entered her mind that she'd never have a child, that she'd never get pregnant, it drove her crazy. And she couldn't let that thought enter her mind. And that's how profound the issue is that a time addresses. And, uh, you know, I can't say enough. Uh, Tamar and I attended a the Shabbaton this past year, and we're still thinking about it and still recalling how profoundly affected we were by that weekend. I do also have to mention, because, uh, you know, the old line, the three things the world stands on, money, money, money. Um, I'm here under the auspices of my role as Director of Bereavement and Trauma through OHEL, which is a program actually funded by the State of New York. I have to thank Senator Simcha Felder, who arranged the funding. So we service the community, and therefore I'm able to come and not have to charge. And uh, So I do think that OL should get its recognition as well, because it's under their auspices that I'm here. So the question, I, the issue I've been asked to speak about is recognizing the good. How can I move forward with a specific focus on perinatal loss, on stillbirth, on the miscarriages, on infant loss? In the area of grief which is the area that uh, I have sort of carved my niche, um, the, this grief, this loss of infants, this stillbirth, is called the disenfranchised grief, the grief that doesn't get its due recognition, because there's a terrible mistake, there's a terrible misconception out there, which is, it's only a baby. 
So, you know, it's not the same kind of loss as might be for an older child. Now, first of all, tsaras, tsarot, do not lend themselves to comparison. You, it's very hard to compare different areas of suffering. But each one has its own unique one. And grief and the loss of an infant and the perinatal loss is a very profound loss. And in some respects, more challenging than the loss of a, a child or a spouse or a parent. It's especially challenging, I have to say, we're going to talk about this, maybe we have some time for the mother, because very often the mother had much more of a palpable relationship with the, uh, the neonatal, the unborn child, or the, ch- the recently born child, than the husband has. And in fact, it even, what, what makes it even more challenging, because one of the uh, challenges for a parent, Lo Elena, who loses a child, is that they want the child's memory to be preserved. The nightmare is that the memory won't be preserved. Not that I'm saying it's a good thing, but if an older child does die, there's friends, their rebellion, their uncles, their aunts. There's a community that can remember that child and can recall that child. When a newborn dies, or is the case like Rabbi Rosen mentioned, when there's a stillbirth, or if it's a newborn, it's only the mother and father, and becomes all the more pressing that they preserve that memory, and they becomes their mandate to preserve their memory. It's also one of the things that, uh, one of the aspects of the death of a young person is the what we often refer to as mourning the future. Uh, when an elderly person dies, we mourn the life they had. When a young person dies, we mourn our dreams. We mourn the life they should have had. In fact, somebody pointed out to me that that's actually a Yerushalmi in the Pasha a week ago. Uh, we were told, it was just, again, I'm, so I don't, I'm not going to focus on Torah, we have a better person for that. But uh, the Yerushalmi said, you know, it says by Noah, Hashem waited seven days to start the, the Mabul. And uh, Rashi says there that they were sitting Shiva for Metushalach. But the Yerushalmi says, no, Hashem was sitting Shiva for the world he was about to destroy. There was a concept of mourning the future, and that's so profound, the loss of an infant. And sometimes, as, every, as comparably born, uh, children born at a comparable time meet all the different types of milestones as if they're revisiting the grief. Now, it's a really profound, by the way, in some respects, people can say sometimes, why is it more so now? What, all these years we've never, as, as Ray Rosen described, we've never focused on this. Why are we focusing on so much now? First of all, it's more rare. There was a time, because there was not such great nutrition, there wasn't such great medical care, that it was far more common for babies to be born, to stillbirths, for infants to, to die. I can tell you that my grandfather who was born in 1879 in a rural part of Germany. There were 11 children born to the family. Only four made it to adulthood. This was what happened. It doesn't happen today, and when it does, it's far more shocking. Also, we have much more of a relationship with the neonatal child. We have sonograms. We, have, we listen to heartbeats. So it is much more of almost like a concrete connection. And therefore, it's much more profound. Therefore, I don't think anybody should be ashamed. Anybody should be made to feel ashamed if they're undergoing some of the real profound grief that accompanies the loss of an infant or a stillbirth, and take advantage of the wonderful services of HUG, which really hits it on the nail and helps support the, these families. So how do you, the question was, recognizing the good, how can I move forward? So let me discuss some pointers. And again, I think I have to be in the spirit of Rechanino, uh, who said, that mostly I've learned from my students, whatever I know, 
maybe I can give a little credit to the textbooks and professors, but mostly it's I've learned from people who have trusted me with their innermost feelings and their most sensitive losses. And that's what I'm sharing with you today. But how do you move forward? First of all, number one, you've got to believe that you can. And it's a very common feeling when a tragedy occurs and an immediate aftermath of a tragedy that you think your life's over. You can't do it. Like, how am I going to get through this? You're going to have that sort of immediate response. And it does feel that way, and it should feel that way, because these losses and these setbacks are so enormous. They're, they're like a tidal wave. But you have to know, as, it's almost as unbelievable as it is, that you can get through it. I will share with you one of the riveting moments in my career was uh, a Shabbat, I'm guessing now it's almost like about two and a half years ago, where as soon as, you know, what you do, you make Havdal and run upstairs to your phone, and immediately there was an urgent message from Swarik Bikaholim that I should call, and I found out about the Sassoon fire. And they asked me to come down to Sharitzai, Zion, on Ocean Parkway, to speak to the community. They said there may be 50 people, there may be 150 people. There were 1,500 people from the, that grief-stricken community. And I, said, I stood there and I said, you know, and I really said this, I, said, I don't know. I don't know how Gail Sassoon is going to manage. I don't know how to respond to this. How do you respond to the loss of seven children? It's real. You really, and we're going to talk about that. So you have to immediately reference those who have done it. You need to talk to hug. You need to talk to be put in touch with people who are breathing, living, celebrating, raising other children just to know that what seems to you legitimately insurmountable can be tackled and can be addressed. And people sometimes ask me, you know, how do you do this work? And I sometimes even jokingly say that this is why I don't get invited to parties. Because people ask me what I do for a living and the party's over. But, you know, well, how, do you, how do you do this work? So I have many answers. But one of the answers I have is I don't just see tragedy. I just don't see misfortune. I see tremendous strength. I see tremendous unity. I sit in awe of the people that I'm working with. I mean, one memory just comes to me now. It goes back a while. It was right during the time when digital clocks were just starting to catch on. And I was working, meeting with a woman, I'm not going to say specifics, only for confidentiality, but named the misfortune, she had it. And I'm, again, I had that tidal wave hit me again, and I, I was just overwhelmed by her suffering. And I just asked her, it was probably a pretty stupid question coming from the person who's supposed to help her, but I said, how do you get up in the morning? I just like spontaneously said that, like, how do you get up in the morning? So she told me, and I remember it like yesterday. She said she bought herself a digital alarm clock. And no matter what day of the week it is, whether it's a weekday where she has to go to work or if it's a Sunday week and she can sleep late, she sets her alarm for 6.13, Taryag. And that's the first thing she sees when she wakes up in the morning. And that's how she gets up in the morning. And I'm looking at her saying, and you're coming to me for help. But that's what you see. And so therefore, that's probably how, that's probably one th- the first thing you have to do. You have to believe. My mother, again, used to say in Yiddish, the men should be affaired. A horse, man is like a horse. There's, there, there's so much strength that you will find, and so much resilience, and so much love and support that you will find, that it, it is doable. There's, there's a few words that come up a lot in this field, and two of them actually, that I'd like to delete from our lexicon. One of them is called strong. 
And what you hear so often is, oh, the person's so strong. They didn't cry. They're so strong. They're not grieving. To me, that's not strength. And believe me, inside they are. Strength is not measured by being stoic, by being the stereotypical yekka, which I am half of, or a stereotypical litvak. Strength is facing it, feeling the pain, hurting, and still getting up in the morning. That's strength. And you're, you're going to know, you're going to find, you're going to see an inner strength that you didn't think you had. But as I said, that doesn't mean that you don't grieve and you're not in pain, that you don't cry. I'll share with you one of my, my absolutely favorite studies. A number of years ago, a professor in South Carolina decided to study tears. He wanted to analyze what tears are made of. And he compared the tears that people cry after the loss of an infant, after stillbirth. But the tears that this side of the room would be more familiar with, the tears you get when you cut onions. And they're totally different tears. The tears that you have from crying from pain have stress hormones in them. So when you're crying, you're literally ridding the body of stress hormones. The tears from cutting the onions don't have those. So when you cry, you are actually relieving the body of stress hormones. That's why you feel good after a good cry. So crying is not a sign of weakness. Crying is a normal strength. And again, uh, I'm sure my Wallstein can say this much better than I can, but look at Chumash. The Avos had all the emotions. Avram Avinu cried when Sarah died. Yaakov cried when he thought Yosef was dead. Yitzhak had trauma when he realized that he gave the bracha to the wrong person. Well, the wrong person, the right person, but he was the wrong person. They had all the emotions. Now, they didn't have emotions about the petty things that we did. They were at a different level. But if the Torah wanted us to feel that we should not be emotional, they wouldn't have shared so many of the emotions. So it's not, that's not strength. I remember a number of years ago, a woman whose son, just literally on Shabbos morning, Shabbat morning, did not wake up. And she called me during the Shloshim. And she said to me, Dr. Bumpa, I'm so weak. So I can barely, so I can barely open, I can barely push that revolving door in the department stores. And I can't push them either. But, uh, you know, she said, I'm so weak. And I said, that's because you're strong. She said, what do you mean? I said, let me give you a mashal. Let me give you a parable. Imagine the strongest person in the world. Let's assume it's some sort of Russian Olympic weightlifter. This guy has muscles all over his body. He has steroids for breakfast, steroids for lunch, and steroids for supper. He is about to break the world record. He's about to bench press, I don't know what the world record is. I'm going to say 400 pounds. I don't know if that is the world record. But he's about to break the world record. And he's crossing. And he's sweating. And he's, the veins are popping out all over his body. And he's totally out of breath. And he just about gets the darn thing up, drops it, and faints on the ground. Is he weak or is he strong? You're facing something so difficult, so unthinkable, so painful. And you're getting up in the morning. You're weak, but you're strong. And that's, that's, one of the, that's what strength really is. You should know as well that when you're coping with tragedy, everybody copes their own way. As Yirmiyahu Navi says in Eicha, Hayesh Machov Kamachovi, is there pain like my pain? Everybody's pain is unique, and everybody's way of coping is unique. In fact, one of my favorite Barbanels in the upcoming Parsha, again, when Yaakov believes that Yosef is dead, 
And the Pasuk begins, And all the sons and children got up to offer him comfort. It's in plural. The Pasuk ends, His father cried. And Barbanel asks, why does it go from plural to singular? Other people must have been crying. Why does it go from plural to singular? And he goes on to explain, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, that when it comes to comfort, there were a lot of people. But at the end of the day, a father alone cries for his son. It's a very individual, it's a very lonely experience because for that reason, but it's a very individual experience. But even in terms of coping, what might be an elixir for Ruvain is poison for Shimon. Everybody has their own unique way of coping. And in this respect also, become another very important point in terms of coping after tragedy, is you have to trust your instinct. You have to trust that if what a certain way of coping, if a certain way of, if you need, of talking about it seems right, then talk about it. If being quiet seems right, then be quiet. If visiting the cemetery seems right, visit the cemetery. If looking at pictures seems right, look, then look at pictures. If pictures, not looking at pictures look right, then that's right for you. What happens to us when we're challenged, we're facing these enormous challenges, what I sometimes refer to is a psychological adrenaline rush. What I mean is, you know what happened, these stories about people who are suddenly threatened or a mother whose child is threatened, and suddenly they have this enormous strength, they're lifting cars and they're climbing trees, they're, they're doing things they never thought they could, they could do before. That's because of the rush, the blood rushes all to the extremities and suddenly you have strength, etc. Well, the same thing happens psychologically. When you're challenged, there's a rush to the whatever part of the brain deals with coping, and you know what you have to do. And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten calls, and I'm telling the person what to do based on my experience, based on what I, the research shows, based on what the textbooks say, and they say, no, I don't want to do that. And guess what? Most of the time, they're right. Because for them, that's not the right approach. So if there's ever a time you have to trust your natural instinct, there's ever a time that you have to cope in a way that's right for you. It's when you're facing these kind of large and enormous challenges, when you're facing, when you're when just coming out of the experience of a stillbirth or the death, death of a child. And by the way, this has very interesting and relevant implications for your marriage post-tragedy, especially after infant death. As I mentioned, it's a very different experience for the mother and the father. But very often there's an expectation on the part of both parents that you're going to grieve in sync with each other because there's no more shared loss. God forbid if somebody loses a parent, it's a loss for both of you, but it's more a loss for the, for the child of that parent, the sibling. It's a greater loss for the sibling than it is for the sister-in-law or brother-in-law. But here's a totally shared loss. This is something that a child is an infant and a newborn is something you share together. And yet, very often parents grieve very differently, and especially all the more so in infant loss. Now, I've been asked specifically to focus on a very important topic and a very delicate topic. Um, and I'm certainly looking forward to how Rabbi Wallstein will address this because it so meshes with a Torah perspective. But how, how can, besides how I can move it, recognizing the good. How do you cull or mine the good from an event? Now, this is, and by the way, besides obviously fitting so neatly with a Hashkafic approach, this is an, an, an element of coping with trauma and with loss that is identified and discussed at length 
in psychological journals as well. We're usually a few thousand years behind the Torah, but we do ultimately catch up. But it's a very, you have to be very careful, because nobody's saying that this kind of tragedy is good. I once went to, to visit a family uh, who had just lost an infant, and they were very agitated when I came in. And they told me about someone who had come before them, who had told them that they should be singing and celebrating. Why? Because the Talmud says, everything God does is good. And you have to make a blessing, because ultimately everything is good. So you should be happy. I'm surprised that person made it out of that place alive. Why? He's right. Everything God does is good. And everything, there is a greater good, that there's a greater purpose. But we can't access that. That's one of the areas in which God, and I'm sure Roy Wallstein will address this more effectively than I can, that's God's mystery, and God has to be mysterious, or he wouldn't be God. So we can't, it's, we can't find the good in human tragedy. We can't find the good in the Sassoon fire, and the Azan fire, and the, oh, the terrorist attacks, and Ari Fold. We, we can't see the good in that. What we do is that we try to extract from it something positive, something meaningful, for two purposes, and two very important purposes. One is, it dulls the pain. It doesn't do away with the pain. But it just, you know, it's like taking an aspirin for a headache that goes from being a horrible headache to just a bad headache. It dulls the pain a little bit, and therefore we try to find, we try to extract some meaning. We try to find if there is something we can learn from it. Let me share with you again experience that I had. One of the families, and I, they don't mind that I speak about it publicly, so I will, I will share with you. One of the families that I've had the success of helping is the Avrach family in Los Angeles. Bob Avrach uh, is uh, actually a Hollywood writer who's written some Hollywood pieces. And their son, Ariel, who was a, sh- a student in their Israel, got cancer and ultimately died. And they wrote a book called The Book of Ariel. And in the book, there was one chapter called The Professors Who Failed. They sent me the book, and I was reading the professors who failed. Was, it was one summer, he was too weak, got yeshiva, and he had to be home. So his father said, why don't you go take some college classes? So he registered for physics and psychology. And again, he couldn't drive, he was already very sick, so his father drove him. And he comes into the, first the physics class, father's wait, Bob's waiting outside. Ariel comes out afterwards, he says, I'm dropping the course. He said, why? He said, professors are Asian-American, I can't understand them, it's too complicated. Okay. Take psychology. That can't be too difficult. Comes out of the psychology class, and he said, I'm dropping the class. He said, why? He said, the professor cursed. So when he cursed someone out, he said, no, use Nivolpe. Use vulgarities. I can't be in a class. I'm a boy. I can't be in a class where a professor uses vulgarities. And that was the beginning and end of his college career. So after I read the book, I called Bob and Karen. I thanked them, and I said, you know, i got to confess something. When I'm knocking a nail on the wall... And I had actually my nail, instead of, which is usually the case, instead of the nail. Some very choice words come out of my mouth. I'm not so careful about how I express my frustration. I said, from now on, in memory of Ariel, I will be more careful. I will try to change that. My wife can let you know whether I'm successful or not. I think I'm a little better. But you know what? Now, in some small way, the world's a better place because of Ariel. That, in a very little measure, 
takes away a schnipsel, a little bit of that pain that Avis are going. They're still in pain. But it takes it away by, by calling and looking for something positive. So they're looking for something positive, not to say the event is good. We have to face the fact that it's painful. We have to face the fact that it's excruciatingly painful. But we make it... We wait, In a way, what we do is we take away a little bit of what seems to be the senselessness, the lack of purpose of such, such misfortune and tragedy, and give it a little bit more fortune, or as Rav Soloveitchik said so eloquently, we turn fate into destiny. But there's another piece to it as well, which is that by trying to cull something positive, by somehow trying to make all of ourselves a better person, and by the way, no better example than one Rabbi Rosen just mentioned, by taking a misfortune and starting an organization like this, is because we have, that's the way we cope. Coping is not getting rid of the pain. Uh, one another, I said the two expressions I want to get rid of, one is he's being strong, the other is getting over it. You never get over any loss. You don't get over any f- struggle with infertility. You, you know, you don't get over these things. What happens through our coping and our grieving is we change, we grow, we become stronger people so we can manage it, so we can carry it. It's, uh, someone once put it that, you know, you go from being your grief to having your grief. We can now, or the metaphor I use sometimes is someone carrying a very heavy package and we can't make it lighter. Personal choice, he just has to get stronger. So the looking, for, the recognizing the good is not because we understand the good, the good is beyond our comprehension, but we mine and extract from it some th- way to grow, something good, so that this, this terrible experience can, can be tolerable. And that good that we find, first of all, doesn't have to be, not everybody has the vision, the strength, and the schus to start an organization like a time. Some of you may be familiar with the, with the organization MAD, which was found, Mothers Against Drug Drugs, which was founded by two people whose children were, were one was a quadriplegic, the other was killed by a drunk driver before there were DWI laws, before there were designated drivers, and they changed the whole complexion of how we look at these, these situations. We can't do that. It can be small. It can be just using a little bit less than a little pair when you hurt yourself. It can be just, you know, these little things, but by, by finding that... Again, as I said, we strengthen ourselves and we dull the pain. But it has to be a very personal thing. Nobody can tell you. You can't tell someone else. It has to be meaningful to you. And it's something that you do that's meaningful to you. Another important point in terms of any kind, I'm going to wrap up soon because I know my time is coming up. Um, You know, we often talk about that grief isn't linear. Grief doesn't go in a straight line. Logic would dictate that when the loss took place, it's most painful and then it gets better and better with time. Um, it doesn't work that way. There are good days and there are bad days. There are good months and there are bad months. There are good years and there are bad years. Sometimes they are reminders, as I mentioned, especially with infant loss. As the cousin's child, as a sibling's child who was born healthy and robust around the same time, is growing and maturing and becoming a, a child and a young adult, every milestone hurts. And sometimes it's just out of the blue. There are, there, I think there are events in life. My way of understanding is that there are some events and occurrences in life that are so huge that you, you can't just take it all in at once. So we take it in, like Chavilos, Chavilos is the Gemara would say, we take it in bite-sized portions and different aspects of what it means, 
of that loss enter into our psyche. So it's, a, it's sort of an in-and-out experience. And the other thing is, just deal with it. Deal with it, speak about it, talk to the right people, write, dream, do what your instincts tell you you need to do. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of vulnerability. It's a sign of strength. I'd like to conclude with a quote. A quote that's from a secular source, but it could very well have been from a Musser Sefer. The book is a book probably well known to most of us. It's a book called Man's Search for Meaning, which was written by Viktor Frankl, who was a man who survived the Nazi Holocaust, survived Auschwitz, and wrote, developed a whole way of doing therapy as a result of his experience. It was a bestseller in the early 60s for, um, for I think, over a year. And he talked about how he counseled his fellow inmates in Auschwitz. How do you get, you know, we, we have to, as mental health professionals today, deal with whatever nominal problems we're dealing with today. But how do you counsel people in that Gehenna of Auschwitz? And here's what he described as his counseling, and with that I will conclude. What was needed was a fundamental change in our attitudes towards life. We had to learn ourselves, and furthermore, we had to teach despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We need to stop asking about the meaning of life, and instead to think of ourselves as those who are being questioned by life, daily and hourly. Our answer must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and right conduct. Life ultimately means taking responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the task which it constantly sets for each individual. May Hashem give us the strength and insight to accomplish that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Norman Blumenthal. Very inspiring. Moravitai, ladies and gentlemen, has the tzchut to uh, be asked to introduce our next speaker, who needs no introduction. Uh, we all know Rabbi Zechariah Warfstein is a mover and a shaker in the Jewish world. Uh, Baruch Hashem, when there is a need, when there is a, when there is a niche that needs to be filled, Baruch Hashem, Rabbi Warfstein is right over there. And Rabbi Warfstein, we need your help opening an Ornava in Queens in Mitzvah Hashem. But without further ado, uh, on behalf of eight times, it's close to call upon Rabbi Zachary Wars, and let's give a loud round of applause to Rabbi Wars team. You got to do all the work in Thank you very much. Doctor, thank you for all the accolades, but now you put me in a position to speak after you with all those amazing quotes. By the way, the tears you spoke about, so it says that Leah's eyes were swollen because she was crying all the time. She thought she'd have to marry Esau. Um, I'm sure there was a lot of stress tears in that. And in the end, Baruch Hashem, she didn't have to marry Esau. So we do, yes, we do see a lot of tears in the Torah. So I, um, I, didn't, I didn't go to college. Um, got out of high school and got married, pretty much. So um, my psychology is not from psychology books, but from the psychology book, um, which is the Torah. And everything that we go through in our lives um, is in the Torah. And tragedy, there's a lot of tragedy, a lot of tragedy in the Torah. But I'd like to talk about Arashi in this last week's Parsha, which I think will give chizik to any strength to anyone who's going through any tragedy or trauma in their life. I, I want to say that... Um, 
that when a time asked me to speak, so a few years ago they asked me to come to a Shabbaton. And I try not to go to that many Shabbatons because I try the one time to be home with my children and my wife for Shabbos. But when they asked me, um, I accepted right away. And a week before I went, I was I got a phone call from a time and they said, listen, Wallace, we know you talk on Chinuch a lot. The people that are at the Shabbaton don't have children. You cannot talk about Chinuch. Not one word. I turned to my wife and I said, this is going to be a very depressing Shabbaton. I can't even talk about Chinuch. There's not going to be any kids running around. But, okay, I did not have children for over four years. I knew what it it looked like every month to the EPT to be negative. I knew what that tish above was every single month. So I said, I understand that we have to go. I was blown away. I expected to see 200 couples, miserable, depressed, angry. And the whole Shabbos, they're all smiling and singing. What's the Shabbos? They're dancing. And I was like, this is, this is absolutely amazing that all these couples are so excited. And by the way, I've gotten many phone calls after that Shabbaton that they had children for Hashem. So when I got called to speak tonight, I had the same feeling. I haven't been in Beit Gavriel probably in three years, two, three years, a long time, maybe more. So why all of a sudden the Red Wallstein, yeah, I'm, these are my boys. Everything Torah anytime, which is absolutely amazing. It started in this room. It was the it was the other way around. It wasn't this way. Um, it all started here. Chazak started here. Torah anytime started here. I haven't been here in a very long time. So why am I here tonight? So me and my wife got married. We didn't have children for over four years. And then she got pregnant, and she had something called a molar pregnancy, which is really the same thing as a miscarriage, but you don't realize it because the hormones keep going up, and we were all excited. We were very young, and uh, we lost that We lost that pregnancy, and then we lost three more after that. So I know very much what it feels like. And therefore, when I was told that this is what we're speaking about tonight, I uh, immediately said yes. The last miscarriage my wife had, my father had, I have five daughters, Baruch Hashem. I have no sons. Not Baruch Hashem, I have no sons, but Baruch Hashem, I have five daughters. And my father passed away about 19 years ago. My dream was to have a boy and name him after my father. And my wife got pregnant. And we saw a heartbeat. And I was like, now I know why Hashem didn't give me a boy. Until now. Because he wanted me to wait to have my father's name. And then two weeks later, she lost the ch- we had the miscarriage. So, you go up, 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 up. And then you come down, 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 down. And the doctor spoke very well about, you know, this, everything is for the good. I think we have to change it a little bit that everything is according to a plan. Because when you tell someone who's going through a tragedy, this is for the good, you know, or God doesn't give you any test you can't pass, everyone says the same thing, I didn't ask for a test. So I, I think the answer is not, we're not all able to see that the good in death. But we need to believe that there's a plan. We don't understand the plan, 
but at least there's a plan. It's not random. It's not I'm not lucky. Something just happened. In this week's parasha, last week's parasha, there's a Rashi that's very not known because it's all the way at the end of the parasha and we always learn till Ravish, Amishi, Shishi, but we ne- I think we have to do a flip in school. We have to start from the back of the parasha and go backwards. Because you never get, it's like the parshas in the summer, those eight parshas, when you're not in school, nobody knows Balak, nobody knows these parshas because it's in the summer, who learns it? So you listen to this Rashi. I've been speaking about this Rashi for the last week. Rashi says when, when Avraham Avinu was asked to, to have a bris milah, there was no mile. So Hashem told him to give himself a bris milah. When the Pasuk says, describes the bris milah, it says, when he was circumcised, which sounds like somebody else did the circumcision. And this bothers Rashi. So Rashi says, and this is so important, and I, I spoke to my girls in seminary, I spoke to my boys, I spoke to a bunch of kids in Lakewood that are struggling. It says the following, Notal Avraham Sakin. Avraham took the knife. And he took the piece of foreskin that he needed to cut. And he wanted to do the bris. But he became very scared. Because he was old. His hands were shaking. What did God do? Hashem sent down his hand and held on to Avram's hand and did the bris milah. It's very hard to understand what's going on over here. Avram Avinu, his hands were shaking and he was old, so he was scared to do a bris milah, so it's going to hurt a little bit. You jumped into a fire. You were ready to burn to death, alive. And Rashi says he was old, he was scared, he couldn't do it. What's going on over here? And the answer is, nah, he wasn't scared that he would hurt himself a little bit and cut himself. He was scared, and this is very important, that he had this mitzvah, this one mitzvah, one time. That's it, you can do one bris. You can't do more than one bris. And if his hands are shaking, he's going to mess it up. And he'll never get another chance. When Hashem saw that he wanted to do this one mitzvah, but he was so scared that he wouldn't be able to do it correctly, Hashem said, I will hold your hand. Nowhere else in the Torah does Hashem hold a human being's hand. I will hold your hand and I will do the bris with you. Why didn't Hashem do the bris himself? If Avram's hand's shaking, and you're already holding his hand, Hashem should have said, Avram, give me the knife. I'll do the bris. And if Hashem does the bris, it'll heal right away. And the answer is, that we sometimes have to go through things. But when we go through pain and trauma, and we're having a hard time, and we're scared, we're reacting the wrong way, we're getting angry, we're asking questions, 
I'm not going through this trauma, this situation correctly. Hashem, I want to love you. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to question you. But my hands are shaking. I just lost my beautiful little baby. I don't know how to handle this. Hashem says, I'm going to hold your hand. person very close to me lost their 19-year-old son this past week. And I went to be Menachem Avel on Friday. And I told her, and I told her husband, I don't even understand your pain. And when someone says that, it's also a very ridiculous thing to say, that I, I, I feel your pain. I, I, I don't know if people say that. I'm sure you talk about this in psychology. You cannot feel someone else's pain. If I took a needle right now and stuck it in my finger, you all might say, ow, but your finger doesn't hurt you. You can feel that I am in pain. But no human being can feel another one's pain. We have different sensitivities. We have different backgrounds. We come from different places. So when someone walks in and someone just went through a loss, and they're like, don't ever say, I feel your pain, man. You don't feel my pain. You feel I am in pain. Nobody can feel another human being's pain. And I said to them, the only thing I can tell you is that people who go through trauma and people whose hands are shaking and people who are scared that they're not having the right reaction, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I'm, I'm not going to change what happened. I'm not going to do Tchiyas on the spot. But I will hold your hand through this situation. And Yitzhak Avinu, who got the spiritual DNA from his father, when he was laying on the Mizbeach about to be shechted, turned to his father and said, you got one shot at this. And if I move one drop, I'll become a trefa, and the carbon that you want to bring will not be good. Tie me up. We do not celebrate the Shechita of Yitzchak. We do not celebrate the carbon of Yitzchak. We celebrate the Akedah of Yitzchak. And the Akedah of Yitzchak is Yitzchak Avinu who got it from his father that we're going to go through this situation one time. I don't want to mess it up. Make sure I don't shake. We all need to know that through every situation that we go through, God will hold our hand. But we have to go through the situation. He will not go through the situation for us. He did not give Avram Avinu the bris. He said, Avram, you got to go through it. But I'm going to hold your hand. And I said this over in Lakewood to a bunch of kids that are really struggling and need to know that even though they've gone through all types of trauma and their hands are shaking and they don't want to go forward, it says in Rashi, he, didn't want to, he wasn't going to do the bris. He said, I can't do it. I can't do it. The doctor said very beautifully, they're human beings. Avram Avinu! Hashem, I can't do it! I'm not going to do it correctly. I'm, I'm scared. I'm old. I'm shaking. I said to these kids, if Avram said he can't do it, don't feel so bad if you say you can't do it. We all need to need that and know that in our psychology. Rachli Menu also said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that it was a big challenge for me. I spoke about it last night on this video. It was a big challenge for me. I didn't want to give this Iman. I was jealous of my sister. I had to break it. So Rimenu laughed. How many of you would laugh if Hashem came to you and told you you're going to have a child next year? I don't care how old you are. 
Sarimenu. She laughed. Why did the Torah tell us that? To teach us that they were human and they went through trauma. And that Yaakov Avinu lost his Ruach HaKodesh. Yaakov Avinu didn't say, Yaakov Avinu didn't say, if Yosef is dead, it's good. It's good. It's meant to be. Yaakov Avinu. But he was in so much pain, that even though he was very close to Hashem, he had a Muna, he didn't say Hashem did something to me that I didn't deserve, but he was in so much pain, the Ruach HaKodesh you cannot have unless you're Besimcha. So even Yaakov Avinu wasn't Besimcha. I'm here tonight that you shouldn't beat yourself up. That you have a little bit of a question and that your hands are shaking and that you don't feel the same connection. Our Ovis Avashenu had to go through the same thing. At the same time, if there's a plan, somewhere in that plan, there's something good. The greatest lesson was Yosef HaTzadik. When he was sold out to Mitzrayim, we can't even understand what it meant for Yosef, who is Yaakov's ben Yochid, who learned by his father for 17 years, his brothers take him and sell him to the worst immoral place in the world. And he's sitting on this caravan, and he doesn't know if he's going to live, he's going to die, he's going to be a slave, what he's going to be. And he's sitting in this wagon, says Rashi, the Arabs were carrying spices. And he turns to Hashem, Rashi says, and he says, you didn't forget me. He's being sold the biggest trauma of his life, and he found somewhere in that trauma, there's something good, and the minute he found that something good, and I think that's the point. In your trauma, if you could find, it's not, it's not a good thing when someone has a stillborn, but in your trauma, if you could find one little thing good, then you know that, that it's a God's plan, and that you're still connected, and that He still loves you. So we need to look, and that's the, what we're talking about tonight, we need to look into what happened to find one little, okay, they sold me, it's trauma, who knows what's going to happen? But He put me in spices. Maybe I'm going to die at the end of the ride, but I'm going to smell good. Tarashi. It's all here. It's all in the title. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you Rav Chaim Vital. I was told this Rav Chaim Vital a long time ago. And I have dealt with my own students who have had stillborns and miscarriages and Down syndrome children and autistic children and children with heart problems. I'm teaching 40 years. I have a lot of students. Can we tell us something amazing? We all know that a Down syndrome child has a very holy soul. The great Rabbanim used to get up when a Down syndrome child walked into a room. The Gedolim used to stand up. Why? Because every person has a choice, the Zayar says. When you come to the next world, if you should go to Gehenna, if you have to get rid of some sins, no one in Beit Gavriel, but if someone who has some sins and you have to get rid of them, you have a choice to either go there or to come down this world and Gilgul Tikra and try to fix it. So the problem with that choice is that you might have to fix two Averis. If you come back to this world, you might come back with 2,000 Averis. So it's a gamble. Just take care of the two Averis and sit in Ganei then. But some of the shamans are like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to come back with 2,000 more Averis. I'm going to come back with 2,000 more mitzvahs. 
But the real holy souls, God guarantees them, you will do your time in this world, and you will come straight to Ganeiden, you will not be able to do any more sins. A Down syndrome child is not a bardas, and therefore he can't do any more sins. So the soul in a Down syndrome child or an autistic child is so holy that they have a guaranteed pass that they're going to spend their time in this world, and they're going to be happy, as most Down children are. They come to shul, they're the happiest people in the world. They're very holy souls. And after 120 years, you're going to go back. You're guaranteed you cannot sin. Amazing! So when a Down syndrome child walks in, you stand up. A stillborn child came to the world, or, an, or a person who has a miscarriage, never did a sin, had to spend three months in the mother's womb, comes to Ganeiden, guaranteed, no avarice. Says Rav Chaim Vital, that is so nice. But what about the parents? It's very nice, your misake in the Down syndrome neshama is a big gadol tzaddik from last generation who's going to go to Ganeiden, but the parents of the child, the parents of the stillborn, the parents of the miscarriage, Zilofir, they're being used as a tool to help another soul go to Ganeiden? That's not fair. Three asks. This is something amazing. Says Hashem runs the world, Mida Keneged Mida. And the parents of that soul, because they suffered pain, loss, to bring that Neshama to Ganeden, when they leave this world, those parents go to Ganeden without a din. Because the Neshama of the Tzaddik comes out and says, They suffered for me, that I should go to Ganeden. Midah Kineged Midah, they go to Ganeden with me. Crazy Rav Chaim Vital. Who wants that? Who asks for it? Nobody. But in the end, Hashem doesn't give someone something and not repay them for their suffering. Because that neshama of the child that's miscarried who never even had, and he talks about that, doesn't have to come into the world, doesn't have to go through the birth, doesn't have to go through that whole thing. It's unbelievable. I'm going to end with this story. I have a student who lost a child to SIDS, sudden infant death. And he was sitting shiva, and a rough came to talk to him. He told me over this story. And he said, this rough, I don't know if it was a Divrei Chaim, I don't know exactly who the big tzaddik was, but with this couple that didn't have children and they came back and they came back and they came back and they said, we want a child, we want a child. And he just, he wasn't giving them the bracha and they asked for havtacha and it didn't go and didn't go. And finally, he said, okay, I give you a bracha next year. At this time, you'll have a baby boy. They had a baby boy and they're all excited and they come back to the rabbi and they thank him. I can't believe what you did for us. And a year and a half later, the baby dies. They come back to the Rav, and they say, that's what you gave us? Better you would have never given us a child! You teased us! We had this one child! How could you do this? He said, I'll tell you, this is what he said over, this is from a different, I think it's a different Chaim, he says, I'm going to tell you who your child was. And he said that there was a, I don't know who the king was exactly at the time, who had no children, and the Goyim said that, the Jews prayed every Friday night that the king shouldn't have any children. 
And the king became very angry, and he told the rabbi that if you don't, if you don't pray for me, and if I don't have a child within a year, I'm going to kill all the Jews and throw them out of my country. So they got everyone together, and they died. And of course, we weren't, we weren't praying that he shouldn't have a child, and the queen became pregnant. And at the same time, the, the rabbi's rabbitson became pregnant. And the haters of the Jews who went to the king and told him this, now they had nothing to say, decided that they're going to sneak into the baby's room of the king, they're going to kill the baby, the child, and they're going to say that the Jews made a mistake, and they prayed now that the child should die, and you have to destroy the Jews. They snuck in to the nursery, and they killed the king, the prince, the little teeny baby. That night, the king had a dream. I mean, the rev, the rub had a dream, and he saw exactly what happened. And he didn't know what to do. So without telling the rabbitson, he took his baby, and he snuck into the castle, and he switched them. And he took the baby, dead baby home, and he put his baby there. And the next morning, the rabbitson was screaming that their child, it was like two days after they were born, the child died, and the whole shul, everybody was going crazy, the rev, the rev's child died. And the, the anti-Semites, they were like, Mason, like they killed the kid, and he's alive. They all ran away. They figured, who knows what these Jews are doing, whatever. They killed the kid, and he's alive. They went crazy. A few years later, many years later, the prince, this young, who was really the rough son, was growing up, and the king decided that he needed education. This rabbi was very smart. To make a long story short, he started talking to this kid, and he said to him, he told him, when he got a little older, he told him the whole story. And he told him, by the way, you're not the prince, you're my son. So what are you talking about? He says, if you meet my rabbits, my wife, you'll see that you look exactly like a Chaya. And he, he realized that he was the son of the rabbi. And to make a long story short, the king died, he became the king. I forgot the name, it's written in a book. And he took care of the Jews. He was a, a Jew. And he was the king of this land. They all thought he was a, a guy. And in the end, he ran away. It's a whole story. He ran away. And he lived like, as, a, as a yid, and his mamish saved the, the Jews. Okay? These two are sitting there like, great story. What? What are you telling me this for? And he said, that, that prince who saved the Jews was your child. He's talking about why, why my child. It's because of the first year and a half, he nursed. He nursed from the queen. And it wasn't kosher. And when he came to Ganeidem, because of what he did for the Jews, they said... To be in Yeshiva Shalmaila, you have to be able to talk Kedusha, and because you nursed for a year and a half, you can't talk Kedusha, and therefore you have to go back into the world. He says, that was a tikkun that you did for this child, and that's who that child was that I gave you. Now these are some out-of-the-box stories. There's a plan. Do I know every neshama? Why it's here? I don't know anything. I know zero. But I know that there's a plan. Why I have four miscarriages? Why it took five years to get a kid? I have no idea. Maybe because Hashem saw that one day a time is going to ask me to speak and I'm going to say yes because I know exactly what it feels like. And maybe I have to go through that for that reason. And maybe that's why I'm here tonight. Well, one thing Robert Wallstein can tell everyone in this room, God has a plan. I don't know the plan we don't know the plan. But we know he has a plan. And if he has a plan for me and for everyone, that means he's connected to us. 
And sometimes we don't see the spices in the caravan, but there are always spices in the caravan. I'm not telling anyone I was not a happy camper by any of my miscarriages, and I was not a happy camper every month. And I believed in Hashem. But in the end, He has a plan. And if your hand's shaking, everybody, and it's hard, and you don't want to step further, and you don't want to go further, but Yishlach Hashem is Yadai. Hashem will hold your hand. He held Avraham Avinu's hand. He'll hold everybody else's hand. May we only know Simchas. It's a funny thing. You never have to know the reason for Simcha. If I ask a reason, why is my kid getting married? Why don't I have a kid? Why am I making a bar mitzvah? We don't need any reasons for good stuff. We need reasons for bad stuff because it hurts. It hurts. Because should take all the ra and all the bad and all the pain away from Klai Yisrael. And everyone who needs to have children, who wants to have children, Kosh should give them children without a struggle. And every pregnancy, I'm a Kayin, I'm not the Kayin Gadol. But if you look at the prayer of the Kayin Gadol in the Beis HaMikdash and Yom Kippur, he says, Shalai Tapil, that no Jewish woman who is pregnant, with the Tzila in the Kodesh Kedashim, that no woman who is pregnant should have, should lose a child. What was his prayer, the Kohen Gadol? I'm not the Kohen Gadol, I'm not in the Beis HaMikdash, but I'm in the Beis HaMedrash, and I'm a Kayin, so I want to say in front of a Baruch Hu, and from now on, any Jewish woman who's pregnant, and all those who are young and want to have pregnancies, and are old and want to have pregnancies, they should have healthy pregnancies, there should be no nafels, there should be no miscarriages, and no more trauma in Klai Yisrael, and we should talk be in the base of Middash. Don't ever give up, everyone. Keep your head up. It was a, a famous saying by a by a by a guy, but I'm a hockey fan, and Wayne Gretzky is probably the greatest hockey player that ever played. And I hate quoting, but he was a hockey player, and he said something amazing. They said, you know, he's a skinny guy, really skinny guy. Like I could blow him over. And they asked him. You're the greatest hockey player that ever lived. You scored the most goals. Like, why didn't you ever give up? And he said, that when he was very young, he was told that you miss 100% of the shots you never take. You just got to go for it and push ahead. Let Hashem do what he has to do. But you will, if you don't take the chance, it can't happen. Keep your head up and take the shot. Hold your hand. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.